All right, we are live with the Deadly Analysis Podcast. Um, in case you don't know, the Deadly Analysis Podcast is a place where um, we appreciate living deliciously. Um, and the way we do that is by analyzing and critiquing good horror movies. Um, we have standards here when it comes to good horror movies. Um, one could say we're, we're Puritans about good horror movies. I'm trying to lay this on really thick in the beginning. Um, and because of that, we decided to talk about the uh, 2015 New England folk horror tale, The Witch, uh, written and directed by Robert Eggers. Um, and he describes this movie as a Puritan nightmare or a Puritan's nightmare, um, which I think sort of is like a rich smorgasbord for us to munch on, I think, during the next hour or two. And so the way it works here at the Deadly Analysis Podcast is myself and my co-hosts. Um, so we have Shayra, Ben, and Antonio. Uh, we select our favorite horror films. We all get together. Uh, we remove our shifts. I'm just going to keep throwing these out here. Uh, we basically get naked and talk about our fears, um, intellectually naked. Like we talk about our, not physically, we talk about our fears. We talk about why uh, we have those fears and how they're developed in some of the films that we like. And so this film belongs to Ben. Uh, this is his second film that we've analyzed, the first being The Babadook. Um, so if you haven't seen the, our review and analysis of The Babadook, check it out on our channel. Um, and as always here at the Deadly Analysis Podcast, we like to distinguish between what we collectively enjoyed about the horror film and what we appreciated about it. The former being things that maybe just scared the shit out of us that we liked about uh, that we liked in the film. And then the latter being an exploration of why it scared the shit out of us. So those are the things we're gonna explore today uh, when it comes to Robert Eggers' 2015 film, The Witch. So I'm gonna hand this over to Ben and um, just basically ask, you know, why did you select The Witch uh, as your second film to analyze? Besides the fact that you're able to buy and drink Black Phillip cider, uh, the only one here that's able to do that. Um, why exactly did you select this film to review? Sure. So um, I first and foremost, um, when I picked this movie to to watch it at first, not necessarily knowing that I would add it to our, our list, um, what I first heard about it was, was that it was going to be one of those kind of like slow burn movies. Um, it really seemed like something that was right up my alley, something that I, I, felt, I felt like that I was going to enjoy. Um, it has a really high rating on Rotten Tomatoes, uh, and that was kind of the hook for me. Um, it definitely, it, it did end up turning out to be like one of those kind of movies where it just sort of creeps up on you. Um, it's not something that you can watch and get a lot of those like jump scares. It's not one of those movies. Um, but it's not quite as slow as I was expecting it to me because when you first get into it, there are those first few opening scenes that really just sort of lay the groundwork for you. And even though like through the middle part of the film, it does kind of become a lot more subtle and a lot more symbolic, I think, um, you know, it starts you off on a really strong note and then it ends really strong as well. Uh, another thing that I think that I really enjoyed about this, the reason that I picked it is because not only does it have kind of just that really interesting sort of quality of being that slow burn and, and honestly like extremely sort of like metaphoric. Um, I, I do feel like this movie is almost entirely a metaphor for, for a couple other things that we'll be able to talk about here, but also in, in non-metaphorical terms. So it's just interesting if you were to take it almost literally it would be really cool in that way too. So there are a couple different ways that you can look at this and a few different ways that you can enjoy it. And even beyond that, I do feel like it spoke to me directly, um, particularly because of this, this uh, religious theme um, and almost because it seems like to me that one could interpret it as a deconversion story. Um, and of course, like I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about that uh, as the podcast rolls on. But yeah, just so many ways that I felt like I, I really enjoyed this and so many ways that it, it just it connected with me. Um, on a personal level. 
Yeah, I really enjoyed it too. Um, this was a this was a good movie that you this was a movie that you could look at in in multiple different levels, right? You had a you had a, a just a, a raw horror story at on one level about a family going out into the woods and an actual witch, um, you know, attacking the family. So there's that. That's one thing that really th actually surprised me about the film. When I went into the film, my just judging from the previews, I thought that it was going to be one of those films where you know that was the question: Is there really a witch? Is this something else? Is this going to be like a big twist? But you kind of find out early on. I mean, really early on in the movie, there really is a witch. It kind of it kind of gives you that, and you know, so on on one level, it's a story about a witch attacking a family, right? But on a really more on a, on a much uh, deeper level and in a much more fundamental way, it's about the unraveling of a family to me, and and it, and it gets into a, a lot of deeper things, like you said. Well, uh, a lot of deeper themes, like you said, we'll get into here in a minute. But it, it's 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 a horror movie in a, a lot of different ways. It's it's a it's a tale about a witch, which itself is just sort of a very general kind of horror th uh, trope. So it's it's literally a story about a witch attacking a family, but then it's also about um, uh, the this family just kind of being picked off by um, not just a witch, but kind of the way they interpret the world and what that does to them. Maybe we could, maybe we could say a kind of neuroses um, that develops just in in lieu of their their the way they look at the world i mean there you could almost at a certain point have there not be a witch and maybe this would still kind of be a horror movie right so it kind of worked on on a lot of different levels i kind of dug that um what about you guys what about shay and antonio did you guys like this movie i i just gotta say I, this is one of my favorite horror movies actually one of one of my favorite horror movies it, it's on my top list for sure what did you guys think are you guys there is it a really good film is it mediocre is it bad what did you guys think um i watched it before uh, this is ever something that was going to be on our list. Um, and I took it very literally the first time I watched it. Um, I watched it a second time and noticed a lot of really awesome... And I watched it a couple days ago, by the way. I noticed a lot of really awesome uh, elements to it that I hope we'll get into. But um, the first time I watched it, I took it very literally in that it said it's a folktale. And American folktales tend to um, take truth and embellish it with some supernatural elements, like you have Paul, Paul, uh, what is it, Paul Bunyan and his big giant blue ox, and, and we see this as a larger-than-life uh, character, so I kind of took it that the witch and the ending were just elements of the American folktale, and that really what was happening is, uh, and they talk about it in the film, is that the corn is poisoned with ergot, uh, and they have this ergotism that, that they all are poisoned, and they're all um, hallucinating, and having convulsions and um, acting erratic and dying um, from poisoning. And this was the exact thing that the Salem witch trials um, came about from because people were getting this poisoning and people believed that those that were poisoned by it were therefore witches and that's why they were having these problems. So um, I, I just saw it as very literal the first time I watched it. I was like, this is kind of boring, <laughs> you know, I was like, but then I watched it again, and um, I was like, oh, there's some really there's some really cool elements to this that I totally fucking missed. And it was like I watched a whole di different movie the second time around. So I thought that was cool that I could watch a movie once and see a completely different movie than the second time. It's, it's even a bigger trip if you watch it while eating uh, corn. It really messed up, like, Ergodian corn. You know, it makes the movie just way more interesting. Uh, what about you, Antonio? What did you think about The Witch? Well, as to the corn, being Mexican, there's this um, thing called huitlacoche, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with, but it's a it's actually a type of fungus that grows on corn, 
and is eaten as a kind of a delicacy, I guess. Um, it has a very distinctive flavor to it, and it makes the corn kernels puff up in this kind of alarming looking way, and it's kind of squishy. Um, and yeah, so Mexican dish, coche. Anyway, as to the movie, um, one of the most interesting things about the movie is how it self-consciously presents itself as a New England folktale, and it actually isn't. And I'm not sure if that's intentional on the director's part, but it's much more, in fact, a gothic folktale than it is a, a like a New England 16th, 17th century folktale. It, it's pretty firmly, I think, in the genre of gothic horror, although it does have some like postmodern elements to it as as with like the kind of the ergotism connection and so on. Um, and so as a gothic tale, I think it's interesting, if a little flawed, um, I think it's a beautiful movie. It, that was really what struck me the most about it is it's a beautiful movie. It has a ton of anthropological fidelity, which is something that always grabs me. Um, and I think that it's a good it's a good horror movie as a gothic horror tale, but it would have been, I think, even stronger if it had had sort of the courage of its convictions to really just play itself straightforwardly as an actual New England folktale, which it isn't, although I don't know if it is it, not so intentionally or unintentionally. So distinguish between those two in terms of the context of the film. Why do you think it was more of a gothic, uh, a gothic nightmare, a gothic horror film as opposed to a folktale? Well, in, in terms of a gothic folktale, um, the, the idea is building sort of an atmosphere and building horror um, and, and dread. And most importantly, what distinguishes it from an actual folktale is folktales always have moralistic elements to them. And this is a movie that self-consciously omits a moralistic element and and sort of leaves you in kind of an ambiguous state as to as to the morality of the events that are depicted. Um, you know, are witches good or evil? Well, they're kind of evil, but kind of the protagonist goes off and becomes a witch after really seeming to do her best to live a decent life and be a decent person. So it, it leaves the morality of the of the events you see very ambiguous. And of course, you know, it, it raises bigger contextual questions of, you know, did they leave the, the community because they were uh, lawfully expelled or were they being persecuted? And how you answer that question very much changes the way you frame successive events. You know, if this is a bunch of good people that terrible things are happening to you, look at the movie in one very particular way. And if these are a bunch of horrible, hypocritical, fanatical assholes who are being expelled, then you look at the movie again a very different way. Fundamentally, I think the, the core message of the movie and kind of tying what everybody has put in together is about isolation. Um, this is kind of it's kind of the story of, you know, what happens to the Frankenstein monster when he, you know, floats off on the iceberg, like what happens to him next? And that, that sort of the sort of breakdown of humanity at the edge of the world, completely apart from everybody else, is really the core of what the movie is about, I think. One thing that struck me in this film is that um, there is definitely an evil. Uh, there's a presence of, uh, you know, there's a... Um, uh, there's definitely an antagonist in the film, but no matter how much they pray, you never really see God in any way, which I thought was really interesting. Their prayers are never really answered. Um, God never really shows up to help them. 
but evil does, right? And in that sense, it kind of struck me as uh, one of the other films that we watched a long time ago, where this was sort of pointed out as one of the reasons early on when I was a kid why it scared me so much, and that was Event Horizon. In that film, uh, you know, there's clearly an evil, there's clearly a hell, there's clearly bad, there's that whole side, but there's no good. If there's no good anywhere in the film. And in this film, I, I got that too, no matter how much they pray, and they pray with fervor in this film. Um, God never shows up. Anything good never shows up. Things just get progressively worse. And in fact, you know, one could argue that the harder they pray, the more self-degradation transpires, the more it actually harms them, the more they start to um, develop patterns that become negative and affect the family, that ultimately ends up with, with all of them dying except Thomason, um, which I thought was kind of, I thought that was kind of interesting. I mean, what do you guys make of that? The fact that, you know, there really is nothing like, there really is no good higher power in this anywhere in the film. I mean, maybe, I'm, maybe I missed that, but I didn't catch that at all. Um, I would just like to point out, um, my, my second time around watching this, I realized they all are fucking horrible sinners. Like, hardcore horrible sinners. This is why they were excommunicated from their community. We don't know exactly what they did. The dad did something really hardcore, and, and he even talks about what his sin is, which is pride. He had a, a sin of pride, and his manhood is represented in the wood that he was chopping and that eventually he gets gored by Satan himself and gets all of his manhood falling on top of him. All that wood that he cut uh, fell on top of him. Um, so I feel like a lot of the people died based off of their sins. Like uh, Caleb, he was lusting after his sister and um, like looking at her breasts and things like that. Well, his demise is that this which dressed as a beautiful woman uh kisses him and poisons him and he ends up puking up the apple the the you know symbol of sin uh that that led adam to sin actually the symbol that led adam to sin um so you see a lot of the family members dying from their sin um the baby's sin is that he never got baptized and then his demise is to be basically a baptismal uh, his blood to be a baptismal for a witch and her broom. Um, so every single one of these characters dies by their sin. Um, the, the mother was full of envy and wrath and anger towards her daughter, and she ends up getting stabbed to death <laughs> by her own daughter. Um, so every single one of these people dies a horrendous death, and the twins, I believe they were the ones that were on the fire roasting so that the witches could float off, you know, at the end. I think that's what was happening there. And I think that because of Thomason being um, wrongfully convicted of crimes she never did by these little jerks. <laughs> I could not stand the twins, by the way. I think that was part of her ecstasy at the end, you know? It's like, this is what you get, you bastards, and now I'm going to fly. You know, screw you. <laughs> I got this now. So all of her family died from their sins. They all sinned. And the only one who wanted to stay with the community, who wanted to stay with, with the good people of the community, was Thomason. She was the one that was like, can we please not go? Like, she, she was the one who remembered all the stuff that they had before they came to America. You know, she was the one that kept talking about the glass and, and the beauty of this world that she was a part of, that she wanted to go back to. So I, I think it all boiled down to her family was just horrible sinful assholes and she she broke free um from their sin 
So I, I'm not sure that I I'm not sure I accept that interpretation. Go ahead. <laughs> um, I think I think there's a pretty good argument that Thomason's sin finds her out as well, and that's the but the cost is even higher. Instead of losing her life, she loses her soul, and um and her particular sin is that that she remembers her connection to the the lusts of the flesh, as it were. She remembers glass windows in England, and you know and. Uh, fine silver and so on and that's what she wants and she's willing to trade her her humanity for that um and, it, and and but it is an interesting it is an interesting sort of reversal in that everyone else in the film has their their that kind of that kind of irony imposed on them externally by an outside force and Thomason is the only one who gets the agency to sort of plunge into her own tragedy, as it were. Can it's you guys hear me okay? Is my thing sounding bad or good? Okay, go ahead, Ben. No, that's, that's really interesting. It's a great point about the sin, and it's it's super important to point out. Um, but even if it's it's um, not necessarily taken to the point of looking for each individual sin, like looking for the sins committed by the children, I, I, I definitely think you can see that uh, with Caleb, um, definitely with the father, definitely with the mother. But I think a, a huge pervasive theme here is going to be that concept of original sin and all of the family and all of the children paying for the sins of the father, namely his pride. And for most of the, uh, the beginning of the film, this is sort of um, something that I think that's just implied because like everything that he does is about, well, you know, I know it's best. I know right from wrong. I have that knowledge. And so I'm going to stick to my guns here and be cast out of, you know, the, the garden, if you will. Um, and go off on our own. I'm going to take all of you with me, and you're all going to pay for this, this pride that I have. Um, you know, of course, he eventually does um, can, um, confess to that. He uh, he sort of breaks down and ad admits that most of this is his fault. You know, you also see him sort of supporting all of this deception and lying, pr presumably just because he wants to avoid trouble, because he doesn't want to be seen as the one who is doing these things that are wrong about selling the, uh, the, the, the chalice, you know, about taking Caleb into the woods. He's okay with having that deception so long as it protects him. And all of that, everything that happens to them, I feel like, is really entirely his fault. So that's sort of what frames the movie for me and definitely going to the end of the movie whenever you see Thomason walk off into the woods and literally, uh, well, maybe not necessarily literally, depending on how you interpret, begin floating upwards with the other witches. I see that almost as like a, a casting off of this burden of original sin, right? So she literally becomes light. She becomes freed. Um, and, you know, I, I think that that might tie into, you know, we were talking about with, uh, with American folktales, how there's a moral. This might be the inversion of that. There is an amoral. There is a, a casting off of this, this burden of this Christian morality. <laughs> and naturally, I mean, you, we know what that can tie into in terms of like Nietzsche and stuff. And obviously, I mean, that would go off on a really interesting tangent. But yeah, original sin, man. Like, I really think that's that's probably the one thread that that tied this entire movie together for me. Yeah, I put in my notes here that um, so I actually it, let me know if my mic cuts out too. I, I apologize for that. I, I put in my notes that the father's sin was clearly hubris. Um, Caleb's sin was lust. Uh, the mother's sin was wrath. Right? She was very quick to get on Thomas, and she was just super fast to be angry. And Mercy and Jonas' sin, uh, the twins, was sloth. They didn't want to work. They didn't want to do anything. They just wanted to fool around. Thomason was very different. Thomason kind of did everything right. Um, 
I have here in my notes um, kind of some examples of that. Um, she's kind of the most innocent character of the whole family. She says, um, she says I, things like, I hate thy pity, I need it not, which I thought was also a very, um, a lot of the stuff we'll get into, we're, we're, I really want to focus on the satanic pieces of this because it's, we cannot not talk about that in this film. And some of these are going to sound very self-oriented and very um, satanic in kind of the language that we're going to use here. But one of the things she says is, I hate thy pity, I need it not. Um, and when her mother's beating her to death um, at the very end of the film, her last words to her mom as she's defending herself is, I love you. I mean, this is a character who's trying and who is trying to fit into a very Puritan, you know, li literally a Puritan, Puritanical sort of way of looking at the world and do everything she can for the family while she's growing into adulthood. All of these other family members are starting to develop. I mean, we all sin, right? I think that, uh, you know, this one of the things that that's talked about in the, in the film is um, they're born sinful. Um, corruption is indwelled into them. It's one of the things that they get so scared about with, with Caleb is that Caleb's now in hell. So there's this, there's this constant interpretation of things in light of sinful inclinations that they have as people. And Thomason seems to transcend that. I, I, I kind of agree with Ben's interpretation of the end here that this is a kind of sh shedding off, a transcending of a particular kind of morality, a particular kind of um, way of looking at the world. Now, the counter to that is kind of what Antonio said, that she actually, I mean, we can't forget this now, she signs her name. She signed, she's giving something for this. It's not as simple as she shut it off. What I kind of have to go back to is that there is a cost for this. And we see that cost when he says to her, remove thy shift and I can guide thy hand and, and, and she writes her name. Um, there's a loss there. There's a, there's a giving up of something there. And that's the kind of, that's the thing that gives me pause maybe about interpreting it that way. To, to also as a counterpoint to the notion that uh, Thomason is sort of a pure character, um, you see her go through this whole kind of fantasy of intimidation against her younger sister. Um, and you see her blackmail her brother into going out, you know, against the wishes of the parents, express wishes of the parents into the woods with, uh, with her brother. Um, I think you, there, if you if you look through the movie, there's a number of elements where Thomason is indeed sinning by any by any even you know uh, generous measure of the term, and so that I think is the counterpoint to her as an innocent character. It may represent her floating up at the end may represent a shedding off of a, you know a particular moral system or whatnot, but in terms of the puritanical morality that that the culture that they've inherited seems to operate under um it she's not she's certainly not by any means innocent um and in fact she kind of dips her toe in all of the things that happen with the with, with, with uh the rest of the family if you think about it um so this is where the feminism layer comes in from <laughs> can i throw the throw that one out there because i felt that so strongly in this film um, when she lies to her sister, it's because her sister was already lying and trying to, like, do creepy things. And she was like, fine, I'm the witch, you know, and, and, and says, fuck you, fine. I'm going to play this role that you guys keep trying to post on me, these things that you guys keep trying to throw at me. And when she talks back to her father, hardcore, puts him in his place, hardcore, explains to him why the patriarchy is dumb, hardcore. Uh, but, um... What was the other thing you pointed out? There was the, the, oh yeah, the blackmailing. The blackmailing was because her brother didn't see her as fit to be able to go and do this mission. And she was like, bitch, I can do this shit too. If you don't let me go, I'm going to go tell mom and dad that you're off. 
And so like all of it was a feminist kind of bend and you could easily see the ending as being her freeing herself from the patriarchy. There's, there's a whole entire feminist layer that you could possibly interpret the film as having. Um, and I remember uh, something about the creator of the film said that originally he was just going to focus on the family, but realized that Thomason just ended up becoming the main character, just ended up somehow when he was writing the story, she ended up coming forward and it ended up becoming on its own a feminist story. Almost like it just did it itself when he was trying to write it. So I know that they did supposedly accidentally create a feminist story in there somewhere. Um, that's how I interpreted the feminist story, though. He didn't actually talk about what layers there were, but I could easily see myself and how I tried to break free from my hardcore religious family and the stuff that they tried to put on me that, you know, you need to be barefoot and pregnant in the house kind of mentality. And it's like, no, I'm not, I'm not going to let you sell me off to some people. I'm not going to let you put me in this role. I'm not going to play that role. And she says, I'm going to be free of this. And I guess signing the... You're, you're signing your soul away to the devil. I mean, I could easily see my parents thinking that's what I have done. I could easily see them thinking that that's where I've led my life to um, because I don't believe anymore and because I have uh, broken free from some of the stuff they tried to push on me that I was supposed to do in my life. So in a way, I when I see her floating up, I'm like, ah, yeah, more power to you, girl. <laughs> like screw that. But then what is she signing her soul away to? Like, what does that actually mean? What is, what is that interpretation? Is that, is that saying, uh, I'm free of my family and patriarchy, or is that saying I'm going to sell my soul to somebody else other than my parents? Maybe we, maybe we could, maybe we could invert this and say that by signing the book, she's actually freeing herself, not shackling herself. Right. So, so maybe that's any talk of feminism in this to me gets couched in, I think, the larger conversation, conversation, conversation that was completely accidental. Holy shit. All right. I'm doing that as I drink arrogant bastard ale with a picture of Satan on it. All right. Um, uh, yeah, I think any conversation about like the feminist stuff that you see in the film is couched in, in the satanic stuff in the sense that it's self-oriented. It's about um, doest thou wilts, right? It's about do you want butter? Do you want to see the world? right? Do as thou wilt. And I think that those two things are connected. The idea of overcoming that, that very, very rigid, I mean, more rigid than Christianity. When we say Christianity, we think of something less rigid than the sort of Puritan stuff we're watching in this film. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm going to fix my mic and just kind of go off of there. But I, I think Satanism is, is the, the satanic stuff is, is mixed in there. Well, one of the interesting things I think about the film is that it's a film that is binary, but not dualistic. And, or at least that's, this is my takeaway. I think a lot, there's a lot of elements in the film and this really supports the feminist interpretation in particular. There seems to be a, a binary between sort of um, patriarchy and feminism where patriarchy is equated with, um, you know, author basically authoritarian values, control, um should i uh oh no you keep going yeah keep going? all right so um so patriarchy is associated with control with structure um with uh agriculture with the imposition of order um and uh sort of feminism or or matriarchy or whatever you want to call it 
female power is associated with the, the wilderness, with uh, disorder, uh, with darkness, um, with sort of uh, uh, nonconformity, sort of uh, more nakedness. Um, and the, these elements are juxtaposed very strongly in the movie. And you could you could argue that pretty much every every scene and sequence in the movie can sort of be broken down into these into these binary elements. But the interesting thing about them, as I said, is that they're binary, but they're not dualistic. I don't think that the movie is necessarily make, giving you a moral judgment. And like I said, this is one of the things that I think makes it not a New England folktale and puts it in a much more modern category of fiction um, is that the 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 binaries are not necessarily dualistic. Um, I don't think that femininity is necessarily equated with morality. You know, the witches are the, the witch pastes a baby for flying ointment. That's not that's not really a an, an uplifting or or positive image, but it does accord with sort of the the sanguinity and the wildness of the sort of female power elements in the movie. And and that's you know that so that so there's not really so that on the one hand you have Thomason getting freed which is a positive element and on the other hand you have baby paste which is a negative element on the feminine side, and then on the side of order, um, you know you have you have these statements like you know this wilderness will not consume us we will you know impose ourselves here etc which is which is very human standard sort of thinking you know we're all sort of uh, colonialists at heart in in some sense is insofar as we seek to impose order on our surroundings. But on the other hand, this is also juxtaposed with all the negative elements, which I mean, I don't even need to go down the list, that are associated with patriarchy in the movie. So like I said, binary, but not necessarily dualistic. I actually have a question. Um, and I know this theme is going to keep coming up. Uh, you know, definitely we're talking about the book. Uh, we're talking about baby pace. Uh, hilarious, by the way, very fantastic phrasing. Um, but do we think it's more likely that the witch scenes are are the symbolic scenes or do we really want to interpret them as something that are literal events you know i know we, we talked about the corn we talked about the ergot um and it honestly to me like if if you were to just take this film and remove all of the parts where you literally see a witch i think it would still work right so i think that might be there to to drive sort of the plot um and try drive the point home drive the analogy but I'm not necessarily sure that they're meant to be taken literally. I don't know. Um, what do you guys think though? I mean, is it more likely that they are just symbolic or are they meant to be literal scenes? Um, with the first time I watched it, like I said, with the corn poisoning thing, I, I obviously saw that as not an actual thing. It was probably just part of the folk tale. Uh, but um, as far as a feminist storyline, I mean, I think that's how a lot of people see women in feminism is this grotesque, disgusting, baby killing, you know, assholes who are trying to impose their will and, and take over, you know, mankind. Um, so it, it could easily fit in with the feminism, you know, storyline and how people see feminists. Um, but as far as the layer that I think is about the sinning of the family and that goes more into the storyline. Um, I don't know. Are, is it is it necessary? Are the witches necessary for that layer? I don't. I don't think so. In fact, I think the witches are way way less necessary than uh, you know Satan was. I think Satan was the the thing that ran everything. The witches were just kind of his followers, I guess. Just they just happen to be there 
because of him that he's those are the people that he's led over maybe much like Thomason um, I don't think they were as important of an element to the story I think they're just meant to creep you out <laughs> can you guys hear me okay cool uh, yeah I, th I thought they were literal um, I mean I, I guess you know I, I in one sense I feel like the story can function without them um, but it did feel like um, they needed to be there, if for anything, the, the end of the film. I mean, she transcends not by herself, she transcends collectively, and I think there's something to that. Um, you know, if she was just sitting there hovering over, I, I can't imagine the film the same way if she was just sort of floating on a fire by herself. There's something collective there that I think you lose if it's, um, <laughs> we're going to call it the Ergodian interpretation. Um, like, I feel like you lose something there. I, I you know, I... I, I needed that to have a, a dual layered conversation about this film. Um, I, I think I think that it's not really a Puritan's nightmare, like the way the director describes it, if there really are no witches, right? And I think that's maybe how we should start driving our interpretation here is that think about this film and what happens in it from the perspective of a Puritan. That's how the director wrote this. That's how he wanted everyone to think about it. Um, you know, um, the family member sin starts creeping up and taking hold of them and winning. Um, at the very end, pretty much all of them die in their sins. Um, their baby is sent to hell and Thomason signs a pact with the devil. This is a, a Puritan nightmare and it wouldn't be that same sort of Puritan nightmare if there were no actual witches. So that's kind of how I look at it. Um, can I just point out the um, seven deadly sins are pretty well uh, established with the family. But one of the interesting things I noticed at the end the second time around was that there were six witches at the fire and she was the seventh. So... Um, I kept seeing the theme of the seven deadly sins and then the seven witches. So I, I definitely think there was symbolism going on um, with the ending scene. And I think the ending scene does make it pretty awesome. <laughs> it was a great, it was a great scene. So I don't yeah. want it taken out, but it, the story could work without it. It could. That would go actually, come to think of it, that would go with Antonio's thing, right? So if we, if we, um, uh, if, if we don't see Thomason as a sinless entity, right? And we see her as, as sinning. And if there is six other witches, perhaps those witches represent each of the deadly sins. And then we'd have to ask ourselves, what does Thomason represent? And because she's clearly on that list, right? It's really interesting. Let me ask you guys a question. Why do you guys think Satanists enjoyed this film so much? This film was like, I don't know if you guys know this, but this film was pushed so heavily when it came out by the Church of Satan. And I remember at the time, like getting like, I think they were like AFA action alerts, like, you know, like the American Family Association alerts about like this film and how like it's so satanic and 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 the Church of Satan just ate it up. They, um, there's puns everywhere today. Uh, they, Fun they, fact, I yeah. used to be a part of that group. Ah, so you can give us like <laughs> special insight. Okay, yeah. I want to know this. I want to so, know. I, I can tell you exactly why it, it has it has to do with the feminist uh, bend on it, like and and also the Satan okay. part. Um, women. Yeah, that helps. Women are supposed to be, according to you know Christianity and and obviously what Puritans have tried to tell us to be. They've told us that we have to be this this certain particular thing. And if you read the the text that they have for the Church of Satan, um, there's entire books that they've written about women specifically, and they call them witches, also by the way. Um, but they're not literal witches, obviously. Um, it's it's basically the anti Puritan, if you will. That's what they try to tell women to be. So you're supposed to dress really sexy and wear red lipstick and um, just go against everything that the church would tell you you're supposed to be. 
Where it's... do I sign up for this? <laughs> and I mean, it, like, part of being initiated, you're supposed to, um, well, they, they, there's a lot of different ways that people do this, but I've heard of people going to this altar and having an orgasm in front of the rest of the congregation. I mean, this is a huge woman empowerment movement, and they literally call the women witches to do this. You're supposed to sexually entice men. You're supposed to do everything that they tell you you're not supposed to do in Puritan stuff. So I can see why it was intriguing to them, because it kind of... Um, it took the Puritan world and um, gave them a nightmare, as you say, uh, that is literally what they've been trying to tell women that they should be, is the anti-Puritan. So, yeah, I, I, I can see why it was intri intriguing to them. Yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah, I I um, I mean, for me, I, I sort of figured the... the um, it, to me, it just sort of felt like there was a distinction in this film between... Um, between uh, uh, self-deprecating in terms of the the desires one has, I mean, you'll, you'll notice in this film, for example, that um, they they really do they try to hide their sins in particular ways, but they also try to um, sort of push them away into a corner, thinking that they can get rid of them. So, a good example of this, right, is probably the most um, the most memorable scene in this film to me is actually, and I, you could probably argue this is the climax of the film, where uh, the father um, takes Thomason and the twins and puts them in the barn and and sort of locks them up. I mean, that to me is like the 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 entire film. If you if you could describe it in terms of taking desires, taking carnality, taking what makes you a human to a certain degree, and trying to hide them away, lock them away, nail them shut. And notice whenever that happens, bat. I mean, no, nothing good ever comes of that in the film when that happens. When that happens, that's when all the bad stuff goes down. That's when the nipple pecking, you know, the nipple pecking starts happening. All right, <laughs> yeah, that's when things go bad. And I don't know. To me, that that um, I I took that from the film very very heavily. That um, you know, that uh, that it there's a production of a kind of neuroses if you interpret things that make you who you are to a large extent and you couch them away and try to lock them up and nail them up to the extent that Puritans have. And I would even argue um, to the extent that I think most Christians do today here in the West. Um, I had a, a conversation with a, with a fellow that this that totally reminded me of this. Um, he's a fellow that some of you know, I, Antonio, you definitely know him. And um, he's, a, he's a very devout evangelical Christian and I know him very well. And we were having a conversation in, in real life and um, he just seems so filled with anxiety and so filled with stress because he put this emphasis so heavily on trying to do everything the right way. And the right way meant um, the way God would want him to do it, the way that the virtues demand him to do it, to the way, you know, the straight and narrow path, that sort of thing. And, and, and I just remember looking at him and seeing so much anxiety from this. And, I, and I, this is, I, honest to God, if I tell you who this is, he'll totally tell you I did this. I looked at him and I said, you know what you need to do? You, he's never drank before. I said, you need to get really, really drunk one night and just watch porn. Like all, like you just need a night of like catharsis where you just, you really just need to sin. You do, you need to like break out just, just for one night, break out of that interpretive mold and just give into catharsis. I literally was like, I was black Philip. I was so black Philip that night. I, I, I was so proud of myself by the way, cause I had been on the flip side a long time ago. I had been on that other side. So I could kind of see like, I, I think, and I think some of us in in this room probably know the anxiety of trying to lock away Jonas and Mercy, right? <laughs> like trying to trying to lock that away. Um, it 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 doubles over. 
I mean, it's, uh, you know, one could argue that it, 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 um, you know, it, it, it makes it more powerful, um, interpreting things that way and trying to close off yourself to those things, as opposed to looking at them honestly and saying, this is a part of who I am, what follows from that, um, that it's okay to give into certain, you know, the, the, I love like sloth. I fucking love sloth. Sloth is the best thing ever. Anyway. Uh, so that was kind of like, I, I, I felt I got that from the film. You've really hit a, you've hit something for me. I didn't even consider. So part of the thing when the dad went off with, uh, Caleb, um, Caleb was really upset about his brother being killed and he hadn't been baptized yet. And, there was a conversation that they had together and the dad realized what his fundamentalism had done to his son. His son was going completely batshit crazy from it because he knew his brother was, you know, in hell. And so he was so upset about it. And, and the dad was like trying to reassure him that everything was okay, but knew he couldn't because he had implanted these ideas in his son of fundamentalism that how do you fix that? Like, you you did this to your kids you were the one who was a fundamentalist and your fundamentalism is what led you to get you know kicked out of the garden of eden too so like his fundamentalism is actually the sin maybe not pride but fundamentalism maybe is because being lukewarm is generally a healthier place to be and when he's locking up the twins in that you know yeah i think i think his sin was fundamentalism i think he was a fundamentalist I, I just you talking made me think of that and I'm like no that was his that's what he did that's what made him wrong well you can certainly see the the production um of how that is going to um how that is going to lead to a kind of anxiety that how it's going to lead to um you know a lot of the stuff that you see in the film the fears the the uh, brooding right um that's all there because of this kind of interpretation that doesn't mean the interpretation's wrong but it's certainly I mean, the conversation should arise that a lot of this produces um, a lot of the maladies. It's a, it's a malformed psyche, I think, in a lot of ways that it produces. And locking it away just makes it worse. Um, yeah, and I, I, that, that and to that extent, I think that that may be the satanic piece to this film, that that overcoming that and being and 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 giving in to one's self um, is is a way of overcoming that interpretation and being free. And that, that may be, I think that, that I, I think that's the hill I'm going to die in, in terms of Thomason's end. what she signs to me, what she signs is not so much her soul away to Satan. It's, it's sort of the, the, the reinterpretation and, and a kind of re self creation through her own, as opposed to a, a sort of patriarchal, um, puritanical, you know, sort of, sort of upbringing. Um, I, I think that's kind of where I stand on that. Um, Why didn't have... the twins get liberated if they served Black Phillip too? That was interesting. So do we think the twins died? We think they died, right? I'm pretty sure they were on the fire, but who knows? I mean, all we know is that there was a giant hole and they weren't there. That's all we really know. I mean, it's possible that Black, Black Phillip <laughs> took him to a special place to hang out with him. Maybe he really liked those twins. I don't <laughs> I know. I got that impression too. And I think there, there's something there to do with the blood. Like in the beginning of the film, you require the blood of the infant to have that ritual where, uh, you know, she floats up. Um, at the end of the film, you see um, Thomason sort of inadvertently uh, bathed in the blood of her mother. And when she gets to the circle, she's able to, to do this as well. And at the end, yeah, I think it just makes sense uh, to carry on that theme where the, the twins were probably the sacrifice necessary to have that particular ritual for all of those people. 
Plus, they were little fuckers. I mean, <laughs> they were horrible, but I could see Satan liking them. I don't know. I don't know Satan personally, so. Yeah, it could also be maybe Antonio. We want to say that they were young. They 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 didn't have the ability to sort of choose. Whereas Thomason is is of the age where she's becoming a woman, and that sort of introduction into into moral decision making, into into being who you are, is now relevant as opposed to being a kid and just running around and playing in the mud with goats. I don't know. Yeah, there is kind of a there is kind of a, a, a menstrual element in the story in that they specifically mention that she's had her period and that this is what qualifies her to go out into the world and suggest placing her with some of the other families. And there's again kind of a dark irony here because of course they suggest placing her with some of the local families and that's there's some resistance to this idea because of course they went out into the wilderness to get away from those sinful such and suches. And of course, the irony is that Thomason ends up with another family out in the woods who is a million times worse from the Puritan perspective than those uh, locals would ever have been. So basically, if you keep telling your kid you can't do this, guess what they're going to go do? <laughs> the worst possible thing. <laughs> Rebellion at its finest. But like, honestly, I don't know what other option she had. She had to kill her mom. Because her mom was trying to kill her. So she had no other option if she wanted to survive. And then afterwards, what are you going to say to these people in the city nearby? Oh, my whole family happened to die. I had to stab my mom. Uh, the goat gored my dad, I swear. Like, they're going to kill her. She's dead. <laughs> She's dead. She's toast. So she really doesn't have any other option for survival. It's not like she can try to grow the corn on her own, it's got that fungus on it, so. We now know why she talked to the goat. Utility. She yeah, had she's like, I have to. It was like, please be real, because I'm gonna die. That's a really interesting point, actually, because I feel like she did have another option, right? Whenever you think about these Christian themes and, um, you know, this, this pervasive theme of self-sacrifice, it's better to let someone harm you than to harm someone else. So she could have totally, if she, if she was in line with, kind of this worldview, she could have let her mother kill her instead of taking her life. But she chose not to do that, right? She chose her own life. She uh -huh. chose her, her sort of selfishness as opposed to self-sacrifice. She did say um, I love you before she killed her mom, though, <laughs> at right. least. Well, I mean, she can love her, but, you know, she maybe perhaps loves herself a little more. Um, but that's really interesting to juxtapose, I think, uh, her ending compared to William's ending. Because, yeah, he gets gored by Black Phillip. But he picks up an axe. He could have fought back. And he says, no, I am uh, corruption. You are my father or, or something like that. But what did that mean? Can I ask what you guys thought that meant? That that was a big, I, I, I wasn't entirely sure how to interpret that. What did that mean? Right. So I think what he was saying there is that he kind of deserved his fate. You know, the wages of sin or death. He saw himself as a sinner. So he's like, you know, yeah, I totally deserve this. Um, and that might, of course, have been one of the reasons why maybe the Church of Satan really appreciated this is because of this this horrendous effect that this worldview can have on you where you come to the point where you literally think you deserve something like that and you just sort of let it happen. You know, it's it's kind of ludicrous. So it, it was like a final act of self-deprecation then. It's, yeah. Wow. Okay. Willing to die and then be buried in your pride. Thing that's that a hell of a way to go out too it's a hell of a way to go out it was a it was a beautiful death and like there's 
there are so many different movies with different deaths, and I'm like, blah, 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 boring, boring, boring. That was an epic death. Like, the way he died was so specific and so, um, it was so meant for him. It caught me at a left field. It was one of the few things in the film, at least the first gore, <laughs> like, just kind of <laughs> caught me, caught me off guard. Um, the other thing, do you notice when he gets gored, he lands in a giant fucking pile of, uh, of wood. Giant pile. I, it was like that was the only thing he was good at. He wasn't good at hunting. He wasn't good at corn, <laughs> growing corn. He, the dude, was literally just good at cutting wood. And there was so there was an over. It, it looked like there was obviously an overabundance of wood. I mean, I'm not an outdoors guy, so I don't know if that's like a normal amount. But that looked. I mean, it was like bigger than the house. He didn't have food. He didn't have any pelts. He didn't have any meat. But he had tons of wood. It was. It was. He was being buried in his failure. In his ah. in his pride well, and his failure. To go to go a little more Freudian here for a minute, or maybe more psychoanalytical to be to be more specific, um, there's some really interesting interactions between William and Black Philip that sort of presage or or symbolize quite a bit. For example, um, when uh, William is first uh, taking Black Philip and putting him back in the paddock. Um, one of the things that, that the movie takes a pain to do is show that William is incapable of handling Black Philip by himself. He, he, the patriarch of the family doesn't have the power to handle the satanic symbol um, under his own strength. He has to rely on other people to clear the way and make sure that everything's okay or else he wouldn't be able to get him under control, which is here symbolized by the paddock, right? And then as far as archetypical stuff, think about how... Um, you know, what, one of the major elements in the film is William's sort of progressive emasculation. He starts out as this sort of very strong figure who's pushing out into the wilderness and he's going to lead his family and he's going to make it all work. And of course, by the end of the film, he's, he's crushed in a literal sense. But, but in a more archetypical sense, think of how he dies. He dies by being penetrated with an, one of the more phallic objects in the film after which he gets then gets enveloped by his work in a very sort of almost cloth-like sense, despite the fact that it's freaking wood. You know what I mean? And I think that there's a lot of symbolic uh, value in that particular uh, sequence of events. The way you just described that death makes it the worst death I've ever heard in my life. I just want you to know that. That's, that's like final destination for intelligent people, like that dying that way, the way you described that. That was horrifying. So did you guys um, did you guys catch the the kid Jonas and Mercy's chant about Black Philip? Did you guys actually hear everything they said? Do you guys? Know? I use caption and I have like big captions on my. I, I'm into captions, so mine are like giant pink captions when I watch movies. Um, so you were watching the Black Philip song, just so I understand, in giant pink lettering. Yeah. That is amazing. Yeah. That is a hell of a way to watch this movie. <laughs> that's, that's how I watch my movies. Um, yeah, I. I it's catchy. <laughs> the, 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 and the lyrics are very telling. I, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm not going to sing it to you, so don't even. I'm going to read it to you. Um, it's Black Philip, Black Philip, a crown grows out of his head. Black Philip, Black Philip, to nanny queen is wed. Oh, it's, my mic's going off again. Damn it. Right when I do the Black Philip song. This is God's work right here. They want to make sure you don't conjure him. <laughs> let, me, let me try and fix this. You guys go for it. And then I'll read you a, a little Black Philip tune. Yeah, you gotta you gotta read it. It's it's really wonderful. Like, well, I, the, I hated the twins, and I didn't even like pay attention to the song. 
at first because I couldn't stand those kids. And then when I watched it the second time around, I was like, that's kind of catchy. These kids are growing on me, so. Well, um, on another on another note that I that I haven't seen talked about uh, a lot on the internet either, um, the names I think are probably significant. Like I think it's not an accident that Thomason, of course, has the name of the doubting apostle. Um, in a similar vein, I don't think it's an accident that the children are named Jonas and Mercy. Um, Jonah being, you know, the the doubting prophet, for lack of a better term, the, the rebellious uh, prophet, and also the one who um, slept in the belly of the fish. Um, and then Mercy, of course, having that, that sort of very allegorical name and, um, and having, some very having some very specific plot elements to her, you know, being the first to sort of announce the concept of a witch um, getting locked away at the end and then disappearing. I think these are they're again not accidental elements that are put into the into the sequence of events in the movie. Yeah, I'm not sure about Caleb. Um, what was uh, the the baby brother's name was Sam. Um, Samuel. Uh... Samuel's the uh, child of promise in the Bible. Yeah. And so, of course, there's an inversion there because obviously he's not, he's, he's sort well, of- he an has to be the child of promise because he's the first actual American in that family. He was the first one born in America. So his being killed, Ooh. the child of promise being killed, the first American being killed, that is very symbolic. I like that. So, that's, that's why they made it such a horrific death. It had to be horrific. So they would destroy that dream. You know. And and yeah, and, and Samuel is a very is a very significant name there because of course if you remember the story of Samuel, um, he was um, the son of Hannah who was barren, and she pledged that if she were to conceive, she would dedicate the child to the service of God. He would be a sacrifice, effectively. She would sacrifice the child if she could have a child, and so Sam, of course, is is uh, the child of promise. And he is in sort of an inversion of the original story, sacrificed and taken away to the Witch of the Wood um, to serve another power, as it were, not God in this case. Yeah, he was dedicated, all right. Yeah. By the way, isn't it amazing that all it takes is um, a little baby with a knife just really close like this to make you unbelievably uneased and horrified. I, I like, I like seeing it. If we could just really quickly jump into the enjoyment piece, that scene right there spoke to me in terms of like the aesthetic of a good horror film, at least to me is I don't need it. We think of the complete opposite of a splatter and gore and eyeballs popping out. There's probably a time and a place for those sorts of things. And I think we all have films that we enjoy that have those in them, but isn't it amazing that done the right way, you can simply have something that's so perfect and innocent, like a little child and just the intro of a knife that slowly starts to you know touch the child and then a fade away and I, I mean I I was horrified in that scene I just left me like I was like this the whole time you know it's amazing it wasn't just that part but then like she was churning the baby and a sure but just turner? but but like, even with what yeah. the fuck is yeah <laughs> yeah even oh with God. that even without the uh even without the little doot, 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 even with that looked really wrong even without the butter churning um I was still absolutely terrified but just by seeing the knife just the first scene right before that yeah but yeah oh that my was, god the oh. taste of butter ben oh that's that's jacked up that's dude the end when, when he's talking about butter and then we the that's baby it. butter 
That's it. Uh, I no. can't. Be- I can't believe it's not Samuel. Oh yep. no! No! That's so bad. All right, I'm gonna try and read this song before my mic cuts out. Um, and you guys tell me because I do think it's kind of telling as to because I, I I I figured it was interesting just by listening to you can barely hear them saying it, so you have to have the subtitles on. But it goes Black Philip, Black Philip, a crown grows out of his head. Black Philip, Black Black Philip, to nanny queen is wed. Jump to the fence post, running in the stall. Black Philip, Black Philip, king of all. Black Philip, Black Philip, king of sky and land. Black Philip, Black Philip, king of sea and sand. We are ye servants, we are ye men. Black Philip eats the lions from the lion's den. I like that. I'm going to get that tattooed on my ass, actually. That sounds like a perfect ass tattoo right there. Poetry. Or you could just get Black Philip and just like sum it up in a picture. That's <laughs> You know what? If you Google that, there's tons of people that have done that tons this film has like i don't it's inspired this i mean they're like it, ben's drinking a freaking cider after black phillips definitely tattoos of it good lord actually yeah if we want to do a little bit of product placement this stuff actually is pretty good just to go ahead and show that fantastic live deliciously folks <laughs> speaking of enjoyment um one of the things that you know to agree with noah here one of the things that i think is best about this movie uh, and that distinguishes it the most from almost every other horror movie out there is that the antagonist is completely faceless. At no point do you ever get a clear shot of the of what the antagonist is supposed to look like in the face. You see the witch in her sort of seductive aspect and you do get a clear shot of her face there, but that's the only point in the movie where there's any clear shot and obviously that's not her final form to use the, the meme term for it. Um... And, uh, and, uh, and so this, I think is brilliant. And, and there's so few antagonists in horror movies that, that have the courage to be executed off screen, you know, and, and to the extent that there is an antagonist on screen, when it's the witch, you don't actually see her do anything that's violent. Or, or you know, in any way that would that would be particularly uh, you know intimidating, other than just by having a creepy presence. She doesn't she doesn't do anything that appears to you know she doesn't throw anything at anybody. She doesn't scream at anybody. She doesn't pop up and jump scare anybody. Um, she doesn't she isn't raging about anything. She doesn't mutter about anything. Um, and and in the same vein, um, you know the the aspect of the devil, Black Philip. You see him, and you see him, and he kind of goes around, and and the actual devil you see only in the form of a man standing behind Thomason who puts his hand on her shoulder and guides her hand to to write in the book, um, and you don't get to see his face either. He also has um, really cool black leather boots with, uh, it looks like they might be cowboy boots. <laughs> Little, what are those things called? The spurs. Spurs. Yeah. Yeah. Riding spurs. Yeah. They hand you those in hell. I mean, if you're the king of hell, you get to choose your own spurs. But that's a good point, though. That's a good point, and I think that goes back to the art. That goes back to the art, Antonio. Like, I, I, this, this film did it. It, it did, um, it did the least amount of sort of traditionally trying to scare you in the way that I think most horror films that are created nowadays try to do, and yet still terrified me. Terrified me without. I mean, you're right. A, a film that can do that with showing you very little um, is 
that is a winner in my book in terms of the enjoyment piece is an absolute winner. It's all, all almost everything that you see in terms of the antagonist is presented in terms of effect rather than in terms of cause. And I think this is really what distinguishes it as a horror film and makes it cleverer than most of them out there is that that you really it doesn't really deal too much with the question of how is this happening to them? It just deals with the question of this is happening. And there is clearly some malevolent means by which this is happening, but we're going to, and we'll hint at a couple potential, you know, avenues for this. Is it the devil? Is there a witch out there? Are they just, you know, eating corn and going crazy? You know, it suggests a few avenues for this, but it doesn't, it doesn't give you anything clear to, to grasp on. It doesn't give you a face for your antagonist in any meaningful way. It just shows this kid, you know, freaks out and then he pukes an apple out and he dies. And then, you know, this dude gets whacked by a goat. And, but, you know, and obviously the goat is a symbol of the devil, but the devil doesn't gloat. He doesn't mention his plans. There isn't set up, you know, you don't see Black Phillip stock up on, on William before he gets gored. It just comes. It just happens. There's very, very little um, of the, there's very little pulling aside to show the man behind the curtain. And that really works to the movie's, uh, to the movie's health, I think. Wait a second. Were there cowboys during the Puritan times? <laughs> no. No. Could Satan be the future of America? And, like, them no. enticing her towards we're, the West to, like... Longer than cowboys. Sorry Ta to shit on that one. <laughs> <laughs> the time-traveling Satan. But, but, uh... But could he be, like, a sign of the future of what America's future was and the, and the different kinds of colonialism that would occur in the future, you know? Like, maybe he was a future Satan. And I, I remember um, watching The Stand and read, well, I read The Stand a million times, but also watching The Stand. They made him very much a cowboy, like the cowboy boots. He had a stupid mullet in the movie, but that's besides uh, the point. Occam, Occam's Razor, guys, there are horses in hell. Okay? That's, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> that's there, what it there is. Are the, there are like the four horses. Before, it's, it's, it's much simpler. He rides nightmares. Hmm nightmare writer that's oddly hot um, yeah I, I don't so, see what the problem is here <laughs> so so you mentioned you mentioned really quickly antonio caleb um in his death i have notes here to kind of ask what did you guys think about his death his death was probably the the most well acted thing i've ever seen from a kid i mean i didn't think it was over the top i was really curious to get your your thoughts on it just for a minute it doesn't even need to be about you know what his death, what he was talking about, and what, what it represented. But his death just seemed way more impactful than any other death in the entire film to me. Um, what did you guys think about his death specifically? Yeah, I'd uh, have to say um, oh, go ahead. I definitely go ahead, agree. Uh, in terms of the acting there, uh, the actor for uh, Caleb was named Harvey Scrimshaw, but that's probably yeah the most fantastic portrayal of of ecstasy I guess that I've perhaps ever seen on film. Um, and that's what I would call it. Of course, he had he had been bled out, right? So he was obviously delirious, uh, very ill. But it didn't seem like like fervor to me so much as that he really looked like he believed that he was seeing the divinity, um, and you know, moving toward that. Um, but honestly, like obviously, the the part that is going to stick out to me the most is about the apple, and so. Whenever we think about the symbolism of the apple, of course, it uh, goes back to the Garden of Eden. And a lot of people, I, I feel like that I've heard, have interpreted that as, as um, taking a bite of that fruit um, as being something sexual. 
And so I, I think that really would play into our, our interpretation of, of his particular sin being lust. However, I do feel like also that in a way you could almost interpret the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as being when you take part of that, you genuinely feel like you know better perhaps than God that you know what good and evil is. And so like that, I think would play into the father's sin, but also kind of like the witch maybe using that as a way to like have this child of God choke on his, his own knowledge of good and evil. Um, I don't know, just uh, just a surface thought there, I suppose. But yeah, I just I definitely agree that that was just fantastic scene. Yeah, that's one of the things we talked about in some of these films is the child acting, right? Because we've had a lot of we've a lot of these films that we've been doing have had child actors in them from, uh, I guess you could count it follows, but from, uh, you know, let the right one in, let me in and, and that sorts of things. Um, this one just had it really well. E even Jonas and Mercy, even though they annoyed the shit out of me, their acting was really good. I think it was like uh, Mercy when she was doing the little um, the little thing of the witch and she was saying clickety clackety clickety clack. It was really fucking good acting. It scared the shit out of me, that little that little girl. Anyway. So. Speaking of the child actors, this poor little boy, his first on-screen kiss is with a witch. Hey, man, if you're going to do it, go hardcore. <laughs> and it's an older woman, too. So It's, it's a dream. That is a dream for any, like, any like, kid actor. <laughs> like, all I thought when I was watching that is I cringed a little, and I was like, these poor actors had to do this. Like, I would be like, I, I'd be the kid, like, messing up, going, <clears throat> oh, we got to do it again. I, like, looked at the camera. <laughs> Damn. Yeah, just as an aside there, uh, I believe this movie is her only on-screen role. I, I'm pretty sure she's actually a Victoria's Secret model. Um, ah. Just just to throw that out there. Oh, that's cool. Okay. I, 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 like, freaked out when you said that and accidentally clicked my camera instead of the microphone. Are you telling me that little boy's first kiss was with a fucking Victoria's Secret model? That's right, Shara. That's what I'm telling you. <laughs> what the hell, dude? <laughs> That kid has got bragging rights. That's amazing. Well, to go back to um to Caleb's death, um one of the things that um I think you can't get past that death scene without discussing is the element where Caleb is Caleb repeatedly and explicitly w expressed fear of hell, and in the final moment, it sort of seems to subvert that or maybe mock that, depending on how you interpret that particular scene. Um. And the other thing about the apple is, I think much more directly, Caleb Caleb's lie was that they went to the valley looking for apples, and I think that's the that's the clear precursor, Chekhov's precursor, as it were, Chekhov's apple. They mentioned the apple. There's going to be an apple showing up, and sure enough, um, and so that's where I think that that's where I think that comes from. It's uh, an element of sort of your sin finding you out. You know, instead of keeping to the straight and narrow, he lied and, you know, sort of spontaneously and also led his father into an opportunity to sort of participate in the deception by not correcting him. And that kind of returns, it, it comes back out through his mouth, you know, uh, and in the, uh, in that sequence. And then I think, I think the, I think his death where he se goes, seems to go into an ecstasy, etc. I don't take a positive interpretation of that. You know, I realize you sort of could interpret it as a religious ecstasy and he sort of is redeemed and gets his assurance of salvation that he's been looking for. But I don't really, I don't really take it that way. I take it more as, you know, the devil speaking through him as indeed they allude to, you know, the, the characters allude to in dialogue a little bit later. Um, I take it as the devil speaking through him um, to sort of mock the notion that, that, 
you know, being simply youthful or, um, you know, uh, sincere is enough to let you escape your, your sin finding you out, as it were. Well, the other important element is what was happening to Mercy and, uh, and Jonas uh, when they were uh, flipping and flopping on the ground. They couldn't pray. They couldn't pray. Um, does that mean that they had, in a way, gone over to Satan's side and that's why they couldn't do it? Or uh, was, there, was there some element of what Caleb was saying was from Satan and so that's why they were flipping and flopping all over the ground? Are they weaker because they're younger? Like, why were they... Why did they become, like, almost comatose afterwards? Yeah, that's interesting. I, I'm just going to chalk up everything for those two just by saying they're little assholes. Like, I, there's just... That's how you explain anything with Mercy and Jonas. It's fuck Mercy and Jonas. That's how you explain it. Little... It's... If you want a good argument to never have kids, Mercy and Jonas. Um, yeah, I think... I think Satan had them at that point. I think that's why they couldn't... They couldn't... They couldn't pray. But then the question is, again, um, like Antonio asked earlier, why? So that that creates a problem, I think, maybe for my interpretation of Thomason, because why, like what happens to them? Why, you know, wh why were they not spared, assuming that they weren't? I, I, it's the only thing maybe as a, a criticism of this film I'd offer is that I wish I would have kind of known that. It would have given me more of a, of a more um, obvious or abrupt way to, to interpret some of the stuff we're talking about if we would have known what happened explicitly to Jonas and Mercy. Um, uh, so there's, there's not many things I dislike about the film. Um, that's definitely one of them. By the way, this is another one of those films where after it ended, the the people in front of me expressed disappointment in the film because it wasn't like a film about, they didn't think it was scary, right? And I, I, you hear this uh, with a lot of people that it, it wasn't a scary film. They went into it thinking there was going to be this witch and it was going to like show up and tear people's face off and fly around and cackle and shit. And um, and I, it, I it's just one of those times I almost climbed a clock tower and killed 10 people. It was It was an awful awful feeling um, that, that that people couldn't see sort of past that, that that wasn't the real horror of the movie, you know what I mean? Anyway, I thought I'd rant. This happened with a couple of films, that was one of them. The other thing I wanted to point out is that um, the family being banished, kind of, it, uh, it, it's interesting, it's almost like a matrixy sort of, it, it, it's, it's a weird thing because Puritans, when you think about like the story of the Puritans, right, coming, coming from England and they they have their own place and they're separating themselves and they're, they're they they want to be the separate society that is um, de expressively devout and religious and so they separate themselves there's a sense of sanctification in them they they move themselves away and that's essentially secondarily what happens to this family they move from the peer from their um from their group from all of the people that they're and they sort of represent as it were i mean from the beginning of the film like exactly what it is to be a Puritan. And I think that that was on purpose. I think separating them out serves in terms of the narrative of the film, but it also just sort of represents like what being a Puritan is and starting it off and giving you a kind of introduction. I mean, you, you literally only see 10 or, 10 or so Puritans at the beginning of the film and then you never see them again. You just see this family. There's a separation there. And I think that gives you kind of a good idea of like what being a, a, a Puritan is like. You know what I mean? It was almost kind of like, okay, here's the Puritans. And then like, they get separated from the Puritans. It's like, good Lord. And then, and then Thomason gets separated from her Puritan family. So it's like, it's like inception. It's like, it's literally well, like a Puritan inception. And one interesting thing about that also is that the conflict that causes the family to, to enter self-imposed exile is never in any way defined. And I, I don't want to even go as so far as to say even explicitly defined. It's not even alluded to. Like they, they, there's deliberate action taken within the dialogue to obscure why exactly they're taking off. 
And this is, I think, the movie very clearly saying it doesn't matter why they left. <laughs> the, Absolutely. It was, what, why, they, why they left, the, the specific reason is not the reason they left. But one thing it does give you um, that I, I think is important in terms of in terms of their leaving is is that that hubris. I mean, you see them at the beginning when they're they're down their knees and they're looking over the woods and that really ominous music is playing with the violin and they're smiling at each other, looking at themselves like like we're you know there's a virtue in being ostracized, right? Like Christians sacrifice themselves, right? I think of first century Rome, like like this is this is the virtue to be separated and to look up and say you know come at me, you know. Um, and I, I it, it, and, and I think even in the conversation that um, that the father has with the council right at the very beginning, there is that kind of hubris. I think he calls them false Christians, right, or something like that. So that's really all it really tells you. But it's interesting that yeah, you're right. We don't know exactly what's going on, but we know enough already about the pride in the father to be better than the folks who banish him which I think is really interesting, which ultimately, right, is the thing that goes downhill. It's the thing that, that messes the family up. But we know they're not completely cut off because they are still talking to other families and talking about selling their daughter to one of them that they think is good enough, you know? Yeah, they're all, like, enough. they're all like two days away. I think right, if you catch the conversation, they're, they're supposed to be like two days away, right? From like, a, from a, from the settlement or something, which is really interesting that they're, they're that's that's close to. I mean, to me, even in, even in back in those days, a two days, you know, um, uh, journey is is not far. Well, one one of the to, to sort of circle back around to to the element of sin. Um, one of the interesting things I thought was that William at, goes at great lengths to describe the power of sin, how we're all born in corruption, and how. Um, without the help of God, there is absolutely no hope of overcoming the our, our evil instincts and our inclinations towards sin. You know, this sort of notion of total depravity. And one of the interesting things is um, that uh, Caleb and um, the mother also express basically this kind of notion at various points. Um, of that, that there is a that they buy into this idea of total depravity and that you cannot escape corruption without the power of God. And one of the very clear messages, if there's any message in the movie, one of the very clear messages is that God is not there. God's not listening or he doesn't exist. And so the notion and so it's it's interesting because it in, it introduces sort of a tragic element to the to the movie where these people are, under the belief that corruption will find them out without the power of God, and there is no power of God, and so therefore they are doomed to corrupt themselves because of the belief in corruption. And and this also sort of tracks with Thomason, because Thomason doesn't actually express a belief in total depravity at any point in the movie, unless I'm remembering wrongly. Um, and she's the only character who doesn't end up uh, suffering from the effects of her own sort of corruption. She ends up sort of escaping the stain of original sin, the inevitability of her own destruction in the absence of the power of God, because at, she, she doesn't acknowledge the absolute necessity for the power of God in saving her from some notion of corruption. There, there is, there is a scene where she does, um, where she's praying. Remember it's the one where she's, I think just Looking right at the up. beginning. Yeah, it's at the beginning. And she says, I know I did, and I have the quote here, I know I deserve shame and misery in this life and eternal hellfire. 
and so I, I put that in the I put that in the section of just about self degradation. That's that's kind of how I saw it. Um, that was just one of shit like twelve <laughs> or thirteen different things that they said. And you know, it's interesting. You know, we the, 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 you know the guy. If you guys know the director um, Eggers, he did a. a a fantastic job of researching this for years, I think half a decade actually, of just delving into this to get the language right, to get the to get the mannerisms right and everything. Um, but he really, I think, you know, this isn't even connected to being a Puritan. I, I know some of us in this room probably when we were Christians have had conversations with themselves like that, that I deserve, I deserve this. I deserve, I know I deserve hellfire, but you're so greater than me. I mean, that's a, that's a very central component to just being uh, really any kind of Christian, I think. Um, yeah, so I, you know, I think that, that that is the thing that is overcome at the end by Thomason, and it's just displayed wildly by the family throughout the entire film. And and it's interesting because there's kind of a reality to it as well. You know, in, in real life, there is an aspect in which um, religious faith, the, the repetition of particular tropes in religious faith um, lead you to believe sort of different different moral characteristics. There's a lot of Christians I've heard who have expressed some sort of sentiment to the effect of, I would be a murderer if it weren't for Jesus kind of thing. And I, I find this to be um, hyperbolic. You know, I, I don't I don't believe that most of these people would actually be murderers if you persuaded them that Jesus didn't exist. And so given that this is sort of a deliberate sort of signaling hyperbole that they're engaging in, I think that I think this is an this is one of those elements where prurience, you know, sort of the fixation on one's corruption or depravity in a particular element leads that to have a much stronger hold over your life. And, um, you know, obviously the really typical example in, in evangelical Christianity would be issues of sexuality, like particularly of homosexuality, where um, there's this, there's this, you know, self-denial aspect that just makes the problem worse, that just makes it worse for you and worse for you and worse for you until you have a crisis of faith. And I think that you see this play out certainly in the witch. There's one thing that I definitely wanted to bring up and, and it might maybe stem from, you know, maybe even my own incomplete or, or perhaps misunderstanding of Christian theology here. But I did want to kind of maybe throw out there the idea that sort of like nudity kind of plays into this and in terms of the Garden Eden of original sin. Um, so we've, I think, come to the point when, you know, at, at the end of the movie, I, I think we agree that there is sort of a casting off there. And to some extent, or at least that's one viable interpretation. Um, but a key component of that is that you see with the witches, there is this, this element of nudity. You know, none of them are wearing clothes. Whenever Thomason writes her name in the book, she takes off her clothes. Whenever Caleb returns, he's naked. Um, and I think it's, it's not, um, it's not unintentional that, you know, that happens because if, if you if you remember in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were supposed to be naked. And that's kind of like what happened whenever they first had that fall, whenever they ate of the, the fruit, is that you know they saw their naked wake they saw their nakedness and knew that they were naked. But before that it wasn't a problem. So that kind of leads me to believe that it wasn't a problem because there was no rule about it. You know, there was no moral weight applied to that. Really, their only rule aside from do what thou wilt was don't eat this fruit like you know do whatever you want but not this thing um and so you know of course whenever you have that one rule it gets broken and then you know that's it's it's not maybe unimportant that it's about making distinctions between good and evil yourself 
but you know, I, I don't know. Like it, it almost seems like you're almost, like a lot of these things aren't necessarily inherently immoral. It's really just sort of your perception of them kind of right. Like after you start down that road of thinking, well, I know what's right and what's wrong. I'm going to make these determinations. You know, you get that pride element. You also get that shame element and there that, that kind of like leads into this sort of self deprecation, but also that maybe it's not like objectively there. It's just maybe our, the, the guilt element that sort of, generates that sin i don't know like it's it's something that i wanted to throw out there and i thought it might be an element it's probably not intentional isn't there a scene also where thomason strips off her father's clothes oh yeah 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 the only the, there's no jonas and mercy like interaction with clothing and the various aspects of the story which is the only kind of thing that i think is is exceptional there because otherwise i would agree because um, otherwise the theme of, of, you know, female power or the witchery or whatever you want to call it seems to be very strongly associated with the theme of nudity. So you see Caleb nude, you see Thomason nude, the baby is taken away without clothing. And when you see it later, it's obviously nude. Witches are always, um, nude when they're out and about doing their thing. Um, there's the element with, uh, William taking William's shirt off. Um, the mother, when she's getting her breast packed, obviously has taken her her top, you know, and exposed herself. Um, and when she's under the sort of the power of this, this malign influence. Um, but Jonas and Mercy seem to be kind of a sticking point there. And I'm wondering if you y'all have any theories as to that. Cause they are supreme. <laughs> Cause they just have to be bitches. Uh, you stole the words from my mouth. Yep. <laughs> no, um, to the, Tit pecking. Um, I found it strange. I thought she was dreaming, but she woke up with blood all over her nightgown in the booby area. Um, so did she like actually hallucinate that Caleb and Sam were hanging out with her and a raven pecked her tit? See, that's what makes me think it wasn't the. <laughs> I keep can't say this without laughing. The Egardian, Egotian interpretation. The corn, the fucking corn. That's what makes me think it wasn't the corn. That this really was a thing that happened. Is is a lot of sequences like that. I, I think that that really happened. Um, yeah. I mean, did she dream and like slice at her chest, and that's <laughs> why she dreamed it? Like, what the heck? Puritans of the corn. <laughs> but like the other, the other thing that's really weird about the mom. Um, she seems to have, you know, a jealousy and anger towards her daughter, and I have to wonder if the mom at some point had been chosen by Satan and knows that her daughter is now being chosen and is jealous of her for being chosen by all the men. Like, whether it be the dad, the brother, or Satan, like, they all represent her being, um, chosen and not the mom anymore. And I, I have to wonder if the mom at one point in time might have been the chosen one and went away from it. And now she's just jealous of her, her kid because she knows what's coming. I go with more of like an archetypical take on that. The way that I look at it is particularly in context of the final interaction they have where they're like, you know, yelling at each other and shit. Um, and she and she calls Thomason a slut repeatedly. Um I think that that's really the the symbolic value there because you know she's cast as as kind of a wan kind of drawn character the mother 
she she's kind of a shrewish character in a in a classical sort of way. Um, and there's a number of ways in which it's it, it, this. There's a lot of there's a lot of uh, association of sort of Christian fanaticism with uh, deprivation of sexual potency in this movie. You know, as as the shown Williams emasculated progressively over the course of the movie. And the mother is is kind of as well, you know, her baby's taken away and her other son is taken away as well. And she's proven and she also proves unable to control her two twins her two, you know, toddlers. Um, and when she when uh, when she sort of hallucinates and, and it turns out that, you know, it's not really her kid there. She's she's actually being fed on. She's not able to provide. She, she's not able to provide sustenance for for a human being. She's just being being you know uh, picked at as though she's sort of carrion. And I think that this is you you can't escape sort of a sexual interpretation of at least some of that, um, such that it's suggested that um, the mother is really jealous of Thomason's um, sexual awakening you know now that she's hit her period that that's clearly one of the also motivations of trying to get her out and go with some family is she's woman enough now let's get her out of here you know i think this this plays very strongly into the into the interaction that the two of them have it's only room for one baby maker in this house <laughs> that's really fucked up though like that really fucks me up the mom character fucks me up more than anybody. When they casted her, I think they just put Loud Shrew in the like in the casting thing. Just loud Shrew, who doesn't mind getting nipped by crows. That's, that's That was it. She did a really good maniacal laugh when she was getting pecked. I, I was just say. about to say that. I was just about to say that. Yes, that's, that's, uh, she's from Game of Thrones. That's right. Like, she did really... Is that all she does is have her, her tits suckled? Is that her <laughs> role? She's a pro. You know what happened? There was a convert. I guarantee there's a conversation. Like, who do we know, like, who's done a role where that's their thing they're known for? And they're like, Game of Thrones got the perfect yeah, girl. They're like, they're like, we need, we need someone to be like doing the whole nursing thing, but it needs to be like someone shrewish, someone not hot, someone the audience shrewish is going to perceive not hot and creepy <laughs> and, and crazy and crazy. Yeah. <laughs> and they're like, they're like, we got the person. Yeah. That's amazing. I, I like seriously, she scares the shit out of me. <laughs> like when I watched her in Game of Thrones, she creeped me the fuck out. But uh, that maniacal laughter when she's getting pecked at it, it still haunts me. It still slightly haunts me. This is why I know it's a horror movie, and we talked about this in the beginning. Like there are some movies that are you know obvious horror, and then there's other movies that we can label horror based off of our own. Um, how we react to it. And a lot of people watched this movie and they were like, this isn't horror. How? How is this not? <laughs> this is horrific. Like, it's a horrible situation. What we um, need to do is get crows to attack their nipples. They'll see it's a horror movie very <laughs> I mean, Babies getting churned like butter and moms getting their tits pecked out by ravens or whatever the hell that was. I'm like, ah, no. Have you guys seen The Village, by the way? Have we all seen The Village here? Yes. Yes. Sadly, yes. I predicted it at the beginning, though, so it was very boring to me, but yeah. 
because there's there's a lot of similarities between this movie and the village in that in that there's this idea of sort of a social experiment of going out into the middle of nowhere where you have control over the narrative and you can sort of shape your own ideal society there's kind of this utopianism and there's and, and you know you're you're kept from wandering too far by these sort of notions of an evil malevolent force out in the woods um, that turns out to be sort of an enemy within and, and at the same time as it is also an enemy without. Um, and so I think there's a lot of parallels to be drawn there, even more than just the fact that there's a creepy wood and a bunch of old timey people living next to it. Okay. Biggest question for me, guys. Biggest question. And this is the last one I have and I want to know really bad. The fucking rabbit in this movie. Okay. I, I could not peg... If that was me trying to read something, I had a moment where I just I looked in the mirror and I'm like, "Are you trying to find something in the rabbit?" Because I don't I don't know if the rabbit meant something or not. I know it 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 just kind of there's almost a comical element to it that it can't be hit. Like it just kind of it's almost like it's mocking the 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 father to a certain extent. Luke what Skywalker. did you guys think? Yeah, <laughs> I'm actually pretty sure that it's just a throwback to Monty Python. Like that was the entire. <laughs> just this malicious rabbit. Um, no, like I, I do think though, like obviously, if you think about it, uh, you know, Black Philip, of course, isn't literally Satan, and you know, at the end of the movie, we do see um, that figure of a human being, like with the, with the cowboy boots and you know whatever. So I think that might have just been. I, I got that feeling too, just like you, that it was something. I really interpreted that as being just another form that that Black Philip or that uh, the devil took in this. Movie. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, you know, there there could be something to that because cinematically, right? The 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 they did a couple real good close-ups, really only on two animals. They did it to they even do it to the crow. I don't think they did it to Black Philip. Remember the eye, really close Black Philip and the rabbit. The rabbit and the goat have that really like panned in um, shot for both of those animals, which is really interesting. The other thing I read, by the way, well, this is somewhat connected, is that the aspect ratio of the film in certain uh, areas is um, is um, distorted purposefully to make everything in the woods look taller and larger to make it seem more daunting and fearful like to give you a perspective of it being this you know this this horrifyingly vast unknown giant span of space that sort of thing so they actually edited like cinematically edited the aspect ratio in certain parts to make it look like that which is kind of cool but yeah um, i know that it didn't fit my tv completely like there were black there's blackness on the sides of my television. So I think that they made it a little more square and a little bit more elongated. Yeah, I know purpose. I know it had a non like a like a non-standard aspect ratio this film did. Um I don't yeah, I, I don't know how far that goes into like the DVDs, but I know that that's one of the things I read that that was makes it stand out from other films is that it had a really weird aspect ratio and it was done purposefully. As far as the rabbit goes, um you have to ask yourself again, you know, obviously there's, there's, there's a deliberate choice as far as the rabbit. It could have been a wolf. It could have been a hawk. You know what I mean? So why sure. a rabbit? And so, and so what's the symbolic value of a rabbit? Well, the rabbit symbolizes two things which are sort of anti-Christian. The first is that it's just a generic um, symbol of the wild. It's a symbol of paganism. Um, and the second is that it's also a symbol of fecundity. It's a symbol of um, vitality and fertility. And both of these things are sort of um, militated against by the Christian ethos that's portrayed in the film. Um, you know, obviously it's very anti-pagan. Exactly, the Easter Bunny. It's very anti-pagan, and um, the it's also very anti-sexual. You know, it's explicitly in a number of places they they 
advocate an anti-sexual kind of ideology. And the rabbit is obviously the, the literal opposite of that, you know, in terms of symbology. Um, and so I think the rabbit sort of represents the, the, the witching power, if you want to call it Black Philip or Satan or whatever. But um, I think it represents the witching power. And, and to sort of tie this back into Black Philip and even maybe the lyrics about Black Philip, you know, it says Black Philip's the king of the world, right? The king of the land, the sky, the sand, etc. And, and indeed, the characters seem to realize this because the woods themselves are part of, you know, the satanic power in the movie. Um, and, you know, they're deliberately portrayed, as Noah mentioned, you know, in aspect ratio in order to appear more encompassing and menacing. The characters, you know, explicitly say that it's that, that they are pitting themselves against this wilderness that threatens to encroach on them and to engulf them. Um, and there's sort of a lot of a lot of these elements of the wood, which are which are the parts that that get you, you know, the the wood, the witch's shack is not just a freestanding structure like those that are built by the, the Puritans. It's integrated into into the land um, and so forth. Uh, there's there's a lot of these sorts of subtle elements where the wildness is is associated with the powers that those sort of that sort of primal power that that is associated with the witches and their coven so um as far as the nature part of the evil um that's actually something that is talked about in the bible uh that the devil is ruling over this particular land that he rules over the earth at this point um yeah, the waste. So uh, it, it totally fits in to what they're, they, they are going to hell. They are, um, they already, they're already in hell. And so as they're going away from those people, they, they're already, they're already leaving the garden. They're already leaving paradise. They're already leaving God's graces. And so I think that might be why God's not listening to them because when you're in hell, um, supposedly you're not supposed to be able to commune with God in hell, right? So, I, I and think that, just, that might be why they are so completely isolated in reality. That's actually a really good point because that really goes back to the heart of what the director's trying to, to trying to form, right? A, a Puritan nightmare that it is the exiting of all things that are that are familiar and good, right? Um, that I think that's a great way to look at it because uh, all of these things, if you're a Puritan family, is is they're not going to be good things, even if you try to to couch them as good things and noble things and virtuous things, right? Um, uh, Antonio, I think if there was any large sort of thing that I could sum up about this film in terms of its appreciative value, it would be, um, and Antonio said it much better than I, I probably will, but the idea that. Um, you know that um, it's it's the that they're doing this to themselves to a certain extent. That the, if, if you see this as a Puritan's nightmare in the sense that they're uh, they're God's not listening and the and, but there is a, there is a, a devil. There's a devil and that God is absent. Um, you know all of these prayers and all of the ways that they're acting, all of the neuroses that's starting to happening in this family is being done by them because of how they view the world and 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 the powers and principalities beyond them. 
Um, and I think that that and again, I think that ties back into maybe Satanism in the sense that that's the that's the bad part of the film. That's the thing that's hurting them the most. It's not necessarily the witches. It's it's that constant trying to to evaluate and fix in situations in which that is just going to make it worse. Uh, you know, I, I always go back and harp on Nietzsche, but Nietzsche said that Christianity came into existence so that it could lighten the heart, but now it has to burden the heart. So afterwards to be able to lighten it. And I think that this film is a perfect highlight of that. Um, it is, it is their way of so heavily interpreting everything that is happening to them and couching it within a very, very puritanical way, a very, um, a, a very, uh, a very theologically heavy way, everything that happens to them, a very self-deprecating way that it spirals, it spirals things out of control. This lighting is really scary. Oh, this is awesome. I'm just going to do this from now on. This is going to be my new lighting. This is it. Black Philip. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, that, that to me, if, I, if there was anything I could draw from it, I think all of these things sort of connect. I think everything we're dancing around sort of connects. And I think if there is anything, I'm going to keep going back to this because I'm realizing this is the theme tonight. If there is anything that kind of stands out, is hard to interpret, kind of hard to fit, like any puzzle piece that's kind of difficult, it's those fucking kids. It's, it's Jonas and Mercy. Everything else pieces together. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, really weird. Dude, like aside from the kids, like everything that you said leading up to that, I, I'm sorry to cut that out. But like everything up that I feel like really leads into kind of um, kind of like what my main takeaway was too. So yes, this might be a Puritan's nightmare. It might be a Puritanical nightmare, but it's probably not a nightmare for everyone because even in hell and yes, in the wilderness, after all, it is better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven as long as you have the courage to rule and to reign, right? Anyway, so like, I felt like that was probably like the big cathartic element to me um, right there. It's just like that's that's probably the big message. And and probably one of the main reasons those pesky Satanists love this film so much. You know? Do you guys have anything else you wanted to add, you wanted to add? Um, the only notes I have that we haven't covered are sort of little minor things like how I noticed little omens in this iteration of watching the film. Things like the crops dying, the chicken eggs, the goat milk, the apple, all these little very obvious things that sort of show that, that you know, we're not in Kansas anymore and shit's about to go down. Uh, other than that, I think you guys pretty much covered like everything that I wanted to say about this movie. I just want to highlight again how anthropologically authentic this movie is. Almost everything in this movie does have some sort of, uh, they note at the end of the movie that, you know, we are, we were super authentic and a lot of the dialogues, even from directly from period sources and blah, blah, blah. And a lot of the movies kind of take a gimmicky approach in that regard based on a true story is kind of infamous by now. Um, I think on that note, but this movie really does bring it home as far as knowing it's, uh, you know, 17th century witchology. Um, the, you know, like for example, the baby paste, uh, it's flying ointment. It actually was a thing that was, that was claimed in, you know, in witch trials of the period where, you know, they'd smear mashed up baby on themselves and that would let them fly. Um, and uh, and a number of other elements like the 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 eggs, for example, the witch souring the eggs and the milk, turning the turning the milk to blood and turning the eggs to uh, to uh, you know sort of bloody embryos, cockatrices maybe cockatrice embryos. Um, and again, I want to emphasize that all of these are are fertility symbols as well. You know that are being directly impacted by the the forces at work in this movie. 
Um, but anyway, it, it's all very, very period accurate. Um, the dialogue's very accurate. The the buildings are fairly accurate. Although one thing, I, the, only, the only thing I didn't really like about the accuracy of the movie was there's no fucking way they put those big ass buildings up in like a season. Absolutely not. Like anybody who's ever built a house by themselves knows there is no way those structures went up under the power of one adult and, you know, one adult male and a bunch of kids and a woman. Especially William. Can't even hunt a fucking rabbit. Think he's going to build a house? Yeah, he's no good at nailing things anyway. He's only good at chopping them. Burn. Take that, William. No good at nailing things. <laughs> yeah, that, that worked on many levels. God. Bam! That was the biggest burn of William ever. It was a bigger burn than when he got gored by the goat. Yeah, he got he got nailed. Jesus. <laughs> he did. <laughs> That's so jacked up. That's jacked so up. So bad. I guess the only thing I want to add is, um, you know, you know, I'm watching a whole bunch of older movies and stuff. Um, I, I will recommend to you guys, and you can watch this on YouTube. Uh, it's an older silent film. I don't know how it's pronounced. It looks like Haxan, H-A-X-A-N. It's a Swedish silent film, um, and it's like part documentary, part hey, let's take all the documented st sources and turn it into some fictional awesomeness about witches and witchcraft um and this That's is cool. an older night it's like early 1900s film um it has some great imagery of witches and satan and all that stuff but um it's not meant to be taken literal they talk about you know what the beliefs were during these times and then they try to uh, make a fictionalized version of what people believed during that time period so um it's educational and also highly entertaining and much laughs were were had when daniel and i watched it but um i i would like to recommend it if you guys are into you know this older witch idea um i think you guys should check it out and it's free and i'll i'll post a link to it if you guys want but um cool. i think you should check it out because it's pretty awesome what that that actually maybe that's a good question what other films do you guys think are like the witch besides that one like are there are there any other films that films that make you feel kind of the same way i mean i mean I, I can i can think of films that make me feel uneasy and there's a slow burn um none that are like period pieces like this that uh, that do that well but um do you guys have any other films that you think was, is kind of on par with this i think a lot of bergman movies honestly are reasonably similar in tone um i think bergman's movies are more intellectual they're smarter movies they're not trying to achieve the sort of horror ends that the witch is um and so they're i think probably more sophisticated in, in their symbology and their layering um but in terms of having these really like sort of bleak stark images that are sort of interspersed and interposed and and with really heavily symbolic elements overlaid with you know folkloric references and stuff like that a lot of bergman stuff is very similar so uh the director of this film i believe is going to be uh the second director to ever take on i mean i'm sorry the third director to ever take on nosferatu he's redoing uh nosferatu which would be really interesting and the witch uh, this is his first film I guess he was a carpenter before this, wrote some scripts before this. He's been in Hollywood sort of his whole life, but this is his first film. I mean, it's almost like a home run, almost like um, uh, Jordan Peele from Get Out, uh, for, with Get Out, you know what I mean? Like just right off the bat, fucking home run uh, film, home run horror film. 
So that'll be really interesting. So that's his, uh, my understanding is that's his next project. So that'd be kind of cool, something to look out for. Um, do you guys have anything else you guys want to add? Yeah, I saw that he's going to do Nosferatu, too. And uh, I thought that was interesting because I just recently watched it. So um, he's like, I mastered witches. I'm good. Moving on. I, I was like, OK, I've, I'm really curious as to where he's going to go with it. Um, if he keeps that same vibe, I think it will. Um, I think he's probably the perfect person to make this because when you watch the older types of horror, they do kind of do the creepy stuff. And this is why I even mentioned an older film, right? Like a lot of the silent films, horror didn't have jump scares, you know? It was, it was a shadow going across a wall creepily. And you were just like, oh no. Fuck that shit. No, <laughs> I'm out of yeah. here. Phantom, right? Car Phantom Carriage is the one that you you reminded me of that I ended up watching. Uh, I think it was on YouTube. And uh, that exactly right. That It's a good, great way it's to put just it. It's just creepy. It's just super, super creepy. And you just don't need anything like a jump scare at all. It would be interesting to do kind of like a, a historical sort of thing to, to sort of trace out sort of like the genealogy of how jump scares became a thing and how they became so central to horror and about what time they became so central. That'd be interesting. I'm sure there's something out there Honestly, on that. Jump scares don't really do it for me, but when I'm playing horror games, that's when it does it for me. Yeah, you're involved. You got your, you're doing stuff. You're, you're moving around. You're the person, now. right? But when I watch movies, I'm like, ooh, a reflection, whatever. <laughs> you know, it's so dumb. But um, I I do like going back to the older way of doing the creepy film. Like, you know, you have a lot of makeup. Um, I think this was uh, really well done, by the way. This film was really well done when it came to um, how they depicted the witch's body, um, how they depicted how she looked when she was um, disguising herself. I thought that their, their clothing, the way that they looked, was just so perfect and so spot on. I felt like I was watching it, <laughs> like going back to the past to be able to watch something really from the past it was pretty great yeah it shows it shows that if you invest you know that amount of time and research into doing that it it, it pays dividends i think um he, he clearly invest it, it didn't feel like a cheap film it felt like a very invested film absolutely yeah, and, and like honestly just focusing on details is what makes a good film i think that's why this works so well um as opposed to some horror films that just look cheap um I don't know. I, I kind of like some of the cheap ones, so I'm not going to totally hate on the cheap ones. But I, I mean, that's why this looks quality, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Like, this looks like someone actually put some time and effort and energy into making something beautiful, um, as opposed to um, some of these films that come out, like The Bye Bye Man, where it's like, oh, the scary element is that there's a coat hanging on the wall. Like, that looks like a reaper robe. Like, that's not scary. Stop. So, um, you know, kudos to him. This is his first film, and it's fantastic. I thought it was great. So. And I guess if I had a, a couple ending thoughts here, just um, just Noah, um, <laughs> you said that the director before this was a carpenter. If, if that's the case, I just, I fucking love that. For this, for this first film. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Beautiful um <laughs> and antonio uh it's really interesting that you said that this reminds you of something that bergman might have done because i have to say that the seventh seal uh is 100 my favorite film of all time um by the way that the budget for that movie was 150,000, 150 150k and it's literally 
the most moving thing that I've ever seen. It's beautiful in terms of just a piece of artistic, just a masterpiece. Love that film. Um, and aesthetic value. I think uh, you know, I've, I've talked a lot about like the symbolism here for me, and that's probably the most important part. But yeah, aesthetically, if I had to relate this to anything else, probably uh, there will be blood, right? So like, you know, at the beginning, you have that that pin of the um, of kind of like the prairie, I guess, and you have that, that sort of like really sort of ominous kind of like disconcerting violin music, just almost almost exactly kind of like the same tone there. And especially when you think about the lighting, um, everything has this weird gray overcast for the entire film. It's just very, um, I don't know, it really puts you in the right frame of mind. And they have a lot of attention to detail there. And it's, it's amazing. Not quite to the level of There Will Be Blood, because I think that was probably kind of like their focus there, not to mention Daniel Day-Lewis's acting. Um, but yeah, definitely had that that strong sort of atmospheric element there. Um, you know, just a lot of those, just attention to detail, those small minor things that really just made them film absolutely just, just stood out to me. Yeah, that's that's a good, that's the perfect way to put it, and I think we talked about this a lot in the It Follows episode. It's it's an incredibly atmospheric film. Uh, it's a great way to describe it. Um, that's the fear in this, I think, too, is is the atmosphere that it creates, the dread that it creates. The witch isn't as scary in, 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 as much as just the setting and and is is the, the the dread of being in that scenario of thinking through those situations with that family. You know what I mean? That's what makes the film so scary and so atmospheric. Um, creeping myself out now, now that I have no light behind me. I'm just absolutely creeping. And I can see myself and creeping myself out. What do you guys, what do you guys think about the film in terms of a rating? I, I, I'll start with Shara. Like, okay, so let's, let's rate this film in terms of the cinematic value and in terms of the fear, right? This is interesting. I think cinematically, it's probably going to have, I, I, I'll give my score at the end. So I always try to blow it. I always try to give mine and ask you yours. God damn it. Um, yeah, what did you think? So in terms of like cinematically speaking, in terms of like how it was produced, um, those aesthetics, and then also um, how scary the film was to you, whatever scary means to you. Um, this wasn't really a scary film to me. It creeped me out a couple of times, but um, the the way that they made it was so fucking beautiful. It was so well done. Uh, the attention to detail in every aspect of it was phenomenal. Um, and the, the fact that there are so many different layers of interpretation uh, that it that makes it truly art and um the funny thing is, is the first time i watched it i was like whatever <laughs> like that was literally my reaction to it the first time i watched it <laughs> so i understand when people are like oh, i don't i don't know how i feel about it um but second time through i'm like holy shit i think i missed a lot of elements to it and i was i was messaging daniel about it and he's like I tried to explain this to you when we were watching it. And I'm like, yeah, but I didn't hear you until I watched it for myself and interpreted it differently. <laughs> like, sorry. That's yeah, you, yeah you, you didn't need no man to tell you. You did it on your own. <laughs> I figured it out the second time. And I kept, like, messaging him when I was watching it the second time around. I was like, oh, my gosh, there's a lot of feminist, you know, layers to this. Oh, there's there's a lot of, uh, I could see the seven deadly sins. Oh, my gosh, I could see how Caleb and the, and the dad are dying by their own sins. And, and he was like... I tried to explain this to you. He was so mad. So, um, apparently I needed a man to explain it to me, but I had to watch it for myself to really get it in. So anyway. I'm just going to call you Thomason from now on. Uh, <laughs> I'm Thomason, uh, uh, yeah. On a scale of one to 10, what do you give this? What do you think? Um, originally I would have given it a freaking 5.5. Oh! Honestly. Blasphemy. That turned me into a soprano there for and, a second. And, That's how blasphemous that was. And the reason why I would have given it that high of a thing was because it was so beautifully done. 
Um, I thought it was kind of crappy, but watching it through again, I really liked the the layers I didn't notice at first. So um, I'm going to bump it to an eight. So. What about you, Antonio? So you have to understand that um, my relationship with scary movies is kind of complex because movies don't scare me um, the way that they do most people. I don't get like tense about movies and I don't get nightmares about movies later. The unreality is apparent enough to me that I'm able to distance myself. And the only thing that, that I'll, you know, sort of react to is just kind of a natural flinch from you know, a particularly loud jump scare or what have you. So for me, what makes a movie truly scary for lack of a better term is when a movie's unnerving to be more precise. So if it's a kind of movie that sort of unnerves me as I'm watching it, and then as, as I leave the theater and afterward and thinking about it, you know, I, I find my mind coming back to whatever scenes or elements that there were in that movie and sort of dwelling on it over and over over the coming days. You know, it's not going to give me nightmares, but I'll keep thinking about it. And sure. it'll keep unnerving me when I think back to it. And that's, that's, the, that's what a scary movie really is to me if it's a good scary movie it'll it'll have me come back and think about it's sort of disquieting elements repeatedly over over you know coming days and i think the witch is a success in that regard um i think it's quite an unnerving movie uh, you know it doesn't have jump scares it doesn't have any of the, of the conventional trappings of horror for the most part but it's wonderfully disquieting in a number of ways. You know, its symbology is disquieting. Its implications are disquieting. Its morality is disquieting. It's everything about it is is just a little bit off kilter. Its perspective, its physical perspective, is disquieting. So um, I think it is a very I think it is a very very scary movie in that regard. Uh, and I wish that we would see more movies that took this approach of of keeping the threat faceless and contextualized in terms of its effects and letting us l l draw our own conclusions and wonder as to ourselves about the process. That's what's the scariest. We don't want really to see the man behind the curtain at the end of the day. So as far as admiration for the movie generally, um, I think it is a visually stunning movie, very anthropologically, um, very anthropologically accurate. Um, like I said earlier, I think that the big flaw of the movie, and I and honestly, I feel like this is really where the director shows that it's his first work, is that the plotting is a little rough. I don't think that the story quite has the courage of its convictions. It has great atmosphere. It has great scenery. It sets up its themes very in a very interesting way. But the themes don't cohere quite strongly enough. There are a couple elements to each theme that you can pick out that are exceptional and contradictory, especially like with the twins Those as we've observed repeatedly. Um, and so there's some narrative roughness there that that is not it's not a it's not a sin, but it's just a symptom of the this being the director's first major work in this regard. And in future efforts, I would expect that sort of roughness to get sh polished out. But it's here. But it's present in this first work. And um, while I don't, while I don't think it makes it a bad movie by any uh, stretch of the imagination, it does uh, make it a harder movie to appreciate on that really high intellectual level. So, and, and that's where I would draw the distinction. You know, I made the comparison to Bergman earlier. Bergman, draw, I, I consider making a comparison to Bergman to be an extremely high compliment to hand a movie. 
and I give that the movie this very high compliment in terms of its um, performances, in terms of its atmosphere, in terms of its cinematography. It's wonderfully set up in those regards. In terms of its plotting, in terms of the intelligence of and and the strength and uh, good organization of its of the themes that it wants to pursue, I think Bergman is head and shoulders above this movie. And so for that reason, my ultimate rating for the movie would be probably somewhere between a 7.5 and an 8. Some 7.5 or 8, depending on, you know, what, what side of the bed I wake up on. Um, because it's a visually stunning movie. It's very strongly executed. Performances are excellent. Cinematography is great. It's quite thoughtful. The anthropology is accurate. All these things I like about the movie, but I'm going to knock it fairly hard because if it just had the courage of its convictions, it really could have been like a Bergman movie. It really could have been one for the ages. It could have been a defining uh, moment in its genre where it, where horror movies become philosophical works for the 21st century. And I don't think we've seen a movie that has quite had that kind of impact yet on like a film school kind of level. This movie could have been it and it didn't. And that disappointed me enough that I got to knock it down to seven and a half. Wow. You know what? For, if the director was watching that and he saw everything you just said, I think all of that would be an absolutely wonderful compliment. Um, and it, it was made all the more horrifying by your cat behind you, who was staring at the camera very intently. That scared the shit out of me half the time you were talking. That was perfect. Um, that's a great summary. That's a great summary. Um, I, yeah, this to me, this movie had a cloud over it. That's what I liked about it. It, it, it was it was it was um, dulling. It was just very it felt weighty there. There was like a, a weight on your back. It's one of those films where you could feel it. Um, and it, it was extremely atmospheric and I love films that do that, that it, it, same as you, Antonio films that unnerve me and unsettle me, um, are films that, you know, films that scar you as Garrett would say, those are the ones that last that I like. And this film has that, um, I, I, I believe it or not, I've only seen this movie twice. Um, I saw it once in theater and then once now. Um, yeah, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I, I, I gotta give this, you know, one thing I love about you guys is, um, you guys are hard asses with your scores. I, I'm so easily satisfied. I'm just so not like you guys. And I love that. Like I, if I even remotely dig a film, I'm quick to give it a high score. I'm like that with everything like food and with beer and anything. If it's even remotely good, I'm like, dude, 10 out of 10, you know? So I got to kind of rail it in for this. Um, because this, I respect this one more, I think, than to just kind of throw out a high score. I, I, I think um, in terms of, of my scoring, which I've, I've sort of admitted is already kind of high, um, cinematically, I would give this movie a nine. And in terms of the fear that it induces, I would give it a nine as well. And that's, <laughs> I was going to say a nine somewhat low for me. Jesus. Uh, that's, that is really just based on the fact that I can sort of empathize. I mean, I'm not a Puritan. I've never been a Puritan, but I, I've prayed some of those prayers. I've I can put myself in a scenario where nothing is being answered and then the horror of interpreting what that means and maybe doubling down or going backwards, the horror of either way, the horror of doubling down and letting that take me down the road of the witch or turning back and reinterpreting and having just the same level, if not more fear in that. Um, you know, I, 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 this is one of those movies that makes me think after it's over. It makes me think about, um, you know, myself and my growth and my 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 change. I should say. I mean, we don't couch it in terms of growth, but my change religiously, um, and it, it it just put a stone in my shoe. You ever have a movie where you just you you can't shake certain things from it, and you think about it? I mean, it follows did that for me. Um, this did that for me. There's very few films that make me kind of just 
kind of always go back to it in my head and think about it. And I think, I think Antonio, I'm with you in the sense that that's what I take to be fear for me. Um, you know, my day, my night, my days of nightmares are somewhat over. Uh, I'm 33 years old. I still fucking dream about clowns. That's never going to go away. But like, you know, I, I, a scary movie to me is one that unsettles and unravels me and makes me think, and this one did that. So I'm going to give it a nine in terms of the fear factor. And I'm going to give it a nine in terms of its cinematic quality. And that's a lot for a first time director. Um, so this is, um, to me, one of the best films we've reviewed so far, in my opinion. Um, so uh, what about you, uh, Ben? If you give this anything lower than a nine, a nine I'm going to shoot myself. So, No, um, just to, uh, maybe I'll just go ahead and spoil it, just to, uh, just to kill that anxiety so that we know <laughs> the end point here so that we can appreciate the journey to get there. Um, I am also going to give this a nine. And the only reason that it gets a nine for me and not something higher is because I have an example of a 10. Um, as I said, you know, the seventh seal is, is my favorite movie of all time. And that's the 10 for me. And like probably the benchmark for every horror movie that I watch is going to be that, you know, everything scales down from there kind of. Um, and really, I mean, the only reason that this, this doesn't get that, that, that level is just because I didn't have that emotional reaction to it that I would have to that movie, even though the reason that I love this so much is because it's so cathartic to me. Um, you know, yes, it's a horror movie. And so like, if you watch this, of course, like you're going to have the group of people who don't connect to a movie. You're going to have the group of people who see this is really, really scary. Um, but then you're going to have people like me who see this and don't see, you know, they connect to it, but it's not horrifying. It's, you know, it's, it's almost like, like a good six months of therapy. Um, like I can see myself in Thomason's shoes. And if I had to make that choice, like just, just thinking to my own personal experiences, like if somebody put a book in front of me, I feel like my deconversion was such that even if that was the real scenario, like I feel like I, just as a big fuck you, I would, I would put my name, I would put my name there. Um, so like I, I totally get, I understand her position and I, I connect with that so much that that overshadows so many elements that you could maybe even critique or like, you know, discuss or debate about, you know, yes, we can compare this movie in terms of its atmosphere to other films. Yes, we can think about the plot, but, um, you know, putting logic aside like this, this connects with me in a really important way. And so, yeah, like I'm, I, I give it a nine. That's what, that's what makes a, a, a film great, right? Is when you can, you can, you can connect to it in that sort of sense. And that's even better with horror movies. I think, I, you know, who, who connects to a horror film, right? Like who talks about that? It's, it's a somewhat rare thing, I think, right? Um, I like that. I, I totally dig that. Um, and, you know, just to just tack on to what you said, you know, I think a lot of people collectively did, at least in the circles that I think we all run with, and I think Shay was one of them, we did all sort of come from a group that, put their name in that book. I mean, remember when YouTube, they did that dumbass blasphemy challenge stuff. Remember that? And a lot of people, it was, but you know, I, you know, I, I, I joke about it, but to a lot of people, it was their remove thy shift, right? It was their put your name in this book. Um, it was their way of deshackling themselves. And, and yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think that that, uh, I, in that sense, I can see how very much so how it would connect with a person who is definitely, who is deconverted. Um, did you guys have anything else you want to add? I can edit anything else you say back into earlier spots. Is there anything else in your notes that you guys wanted to cover? Are you guys good? Cool. Okay, I'm going to do my little outro here, and then uh, and then we'll close up shop. So thank you for watching this episode of the Deadly Analysis podcast. Um, if you didn't see the part where we all got naked and removed our shifts, uh, shame on you. Uh, it was the best part of the show. Uh, we, we, we talked about bunnies. We talked about goats. 
We talked about Satan. Uh, we talked about two really annoying children. I, I think those children are on the level with Honey the Cat. Like that's how much, that's like how much of a wild card they are. Like it, it's just now I can't even, anyway. So yeah, uh, anyway, if you enjoyed this really uh, very strange episode, uh, yeah, Jonas and Mercy, the true villains, just like Honey the Cat. You know, it's never who you, you who you suspect. You, you know, it's never who you suspect in these films. Um, if you enjoyed this very wild show uh, this evening, check us out on Facebook and Twitter and our, our YouTube channel. Obviously, we have a lot, uh, a lot, a lot of cool horror movies that we discuss. Next week, I think we're doing The Wicker Man, which is Antonio's. Um, the original Wicker Man, by the way, not the fucking Nick Cage version. Bees the in bees, your face. The, the bees. bees in your face. Nick Cage version. We're not crazy enough to put that on our... I would have banned Antonio from this group entirely if I would have seen that on the fucking list. Uh, so we'll be doing that next week. Uh, thank you guys for watching and have a good night.